Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Hi, y'all. That sounded very Texan. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to be here teaching this chapter. This chapter... God really used it in my own life, and I feel like I've been so excited to be able to share it with you today. So before we dive into today's chapter, I want us to look over this slide to do a little summarizing of what we've discovered so far from the book of Romans. In Romans 5, we see Christ as our substitution. He died for us. And then in Romans 6 and 7, we learn that we identify with Christ in his death and resurrection. We died with him. And to get, today we're going to see how we grow by the new reality that Christ is now in us. Now the very first word in this chapter is therefore, which means there's something Paul's about to say that's referring to something he said from a previous section. So we need to go back a little bit to get some context here. So remember in chapter 7, Paul's describing the very real experience of still battling with sin as a believer and how we can all tend to, in those moments, survey our situation and feel condemned. Verse 24 in chapter 7, Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And if we stay there, we can all feel the weight of condemnation creeping in. What's the point? Why do I even try when it seems like I'm always going to end up failing? And it almost seems as if Paul is going to go there himself, and then there's this abrupt shift. Paul gets his eyes on the one who saved him, who justified him. He goes back to the beginning and remembers what Jesus did in 725. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And because he fights against the shame creeping in, and he remembers what Jesus did instead, he's able to confidently declare the next verse in 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in the Bible, condemnation means to pronounce guilt to sentence, to punishment, or to pass judgment against. So when God declares that we now have no condemnation, this is past, present, and future sin we will commit. He wiped them away. There is no way for us to be re-condemned for them. I heard a pastor describe our union with Christ like this. God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ, and that is always 100%. So how did God achieve this for us? In verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So God condemns sin in the flesh instead of condemning us. Now there are many things in the Bible that can be confusing to us, right? We might hear certain things in church said over and over again. We look around us, and everyone seems to nod and murmur like they understand. And I remember experiencing this when I first started going back to church in college. It felt like I'd entered into the last act of a play. 
but had missed the first two acts. And I think the Holy Spirit is one of those things that we're supposed to understand, but we don't. Up to this point, the Holy Spirit has only been mentioned twice in the book of Romans, but then we get to Romans 8, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times. So the Holy Spirit can kind of seem like the odd person of the Trinity, and when something is odd to us, we don't know what to do with it, and we can miss out on how the Spirit works in our lives. So I want you to think of who is someone in your life that seems odd to you? You don't quite know what to do with them. And when I ask myself this question, I'm reminded of a man I first saw at a local indoor pool. And every time I'd go, I'd wait outside on the bench, and this older man would drive up in his car and walk up. And he'd always greet me or the other people sitting with me by saying, hello, swimmer, just like that. And he never said anything else besides this. And then he would drop to the ground right in front of the entrance and start doing push-ups. And then he'd jump up and he'd start doing jumping jacks. And, and I'm just sitting on the bench right in front of him going, do I watch him? Do I look away? Like, what's the right thing to do in this situation I've been thrust into? And oh boy, watch out if you got paired next to him in one of the swimming lanes. He'd make this loud groaning sound as he swam that was so annoying. And then when he'd do the kickboard without fail, he'd take it over his head and then smack it down as hard as he could on the water. And the sound just ricocheted through the whole building. I thought I was swimming with a beaver. <laughs> and so fast forward, I'm walking my dog one morning, and I typically take a trail in a neighborhood that kind of throws me into Lions Park. But one morning, I saw what appeared to be a trail on the right. So I followed it into the woods, only to find that the further in I went, the trail widened into this really nicely cleared path. There were logs and branches that someone had cut and placed along the edges of the trail to kind of help guide you so you wouldn't get lost. There were several bridges that someone had made, one going over a tiny creek. And as I'm walking through it, I'm so impressed with whoever took the time to make this trail in the woods that no one can even see. And so one day I'm walking up shallow forward, heading home from Lions Park, and I saw in the distance that man from the pool walking towards me, and I'm like, oh great, he lives in my neighborhood? And how do you think he greeted me? Hello, hiker. That, I, this is a true story. <laughs> And I noticed as I got closer, he had this big bucket filled with large branches and logs that he'd been cutting down alongside the road that runs parallel to the trail. And suddenly, it hit me. I think this man is the one that's been constructing this trail in the woods. And I've always thought of him as so odd and out there. And then I find out he's doing all this hidden work in the woods that I love to walk in so much. And I think in the same way, the Holy Spirit seems odd to us, but all the while he's working in the background to bring about something for our joy and benefit. 
So we're going to spend some time today discussing the Holy Spirit before we even dive into today's text. So we aren't just assuming we know what Paul is saying. So many times we think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, kind of like the force in Star Wars. But when we say that the Holy Spirit is a person, I don't want you thinking of someone with hands, eyes, and feet. When we say person, we mean someone that has their own identity as a rational being. They're aware of their existence. So by person, we mean that the Holy Spirit has knowledge, feeling, and will. Now the Trinity existed before the creation of the world, my Bible's notes call the Trinity a perfect society in himself, existing in relational harmony. So God did not make mankind because he was lonely or bored. He didn't have any longings or needs, but it was out of the overflow of this personal and relational unity that creation was formed. So the Holy Spirit took part in creation when in Genesis 1-2, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's one of my favorite verses. When God breathed the breath of life into man so he became a living thing, the word used for breath in Hebrew, ruach, is the same word used for the Holy Spirit. Bezalel was filled with the Spirit in the book of Exodus in order to make the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit appears in the book of Judges when he would fall on the judges suddenly in order for them to complete different tasks for God. And the Spirit of God rushed on David after Samuel and, excuse me, anointed him king. But then the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, began to predict a time in the future when God would not just have the Spirit come upon us in some temporary way, but that he would actually put his Spirit in us to dwell in us. The Spirit was clearly at work during every significant moment of Jesus' life. In regards to Jesus being born to Mary, Luke 1.35 says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The Spirit came down in the form of a dove and anointed Jesus in his baptism and ministry. Jesus was filled with the Spirit, then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The power of the Spirit is what raised Jesus from the grave, inspired the words of the Bible, and draws us to God. He's also called helper, comforter, counselor. He must be deeply relational in order to spiritually transform us. So many times we think one of the greatest obstacles in our faith is the fact that we don't see Jesus in the flesh like the disciples did. We think if Jesus were just here still and I could see him, it'd be a lot easier to trust him. But guess what? Jesus would not agree with this sentiment because in John 16, 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Jesus then states that the spirit of truth 
will be the one to guide us into all truth. And it is absolutely amazing that Jesus himself said, it's better that I go so the helper can come to you. And then in Acts 1, before Jesus ascends back to be with the Father, he orders them, don't even leave Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. None of their ministry can even start until they receive the power of the Spirit. And so when we look at the body of Scripture and how it shows us the role of the Holy Spirit throughout it, we can just marvel now at what Romans 8 is telling us about the Spirit. It has been placed in you. One of the persons of the Trinity has come to make its dwelling place forever in the believer. And the Spirit's main role is to give us assurance that we belong to God. That's one of the major themes in this chapter. Now in Revelation, though, Satan is described as the accuser of God's people. He is always looking for ways to destroy our assurance and make us believe we are still condemned. Verses 9 through 11 say, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit that dwells in you. So Paul is assuring them, if they've believed in Christ, they have experienced regeneration. And how we're given this new life by the same power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. But if we just stop there, we fall into believing kind of a partial gospel. We believe, okay, Jesus alone saves me. He alone forgives me. But then after that, we can act like Jesus just picks us up, plunks us back down into our life, and says, you're on your own, best of luck. That's why we can't miss the next part. It's so important. In verses 12 through 13, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So we have not been left alone to battle sin. The Spirit in us joins us. And we are released from the penalty of sin by the blood. And we are released from the power of sin by the Spirit. Now remember how we talked about in Romans 3 that we don't need to think of sin just in terms of actions only. And I think a really helpful way to see the heart nature of sin is in the five selves. Now I got this um, outline from J.D. Greer. And the first one is self-will. I want to be in charge, not him. This doesn't necessarily mean that you're engaged in bad things, but that God is not in control. Self-glory, I want to get the credit, not God. Self-gratification, I prioritize my pleasures and comfort 
above the will of God. In self-righteousness, I'm trying to be good enough to distinguish myself and earn my acceptance and then self-sufficiency. I have what it takes to overcome, and I can do this even independent from God. Now, these five selves represent our flesh. Our flesh might recognize its emptiness, but it wants to fill this emptiness with everything but God. Our flesh doesn't want to rest in God. It is restless. And in verse 7, it says our flesh is hostile. It doesn't want to submit to God. And so when we look at specific actions of sin, they're almost always flowing from one of these five heart attitudes. So the grace-fueled work that we join with the Spirit in doing can be summed up by John Owen. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is what the Spirit has joined with us to do is wage war against our flesh. So we don't need to be discouraged if our soul feels like the Battle of Normandy at times. But we must also remember, and this is so important, that this process of putting sin to death is done in light of an 8-1 reality. We are no longer under condemnation. And this leads us into the next verse, which serves as a warning for us. Verse 14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Other translations refer to the spirit of slavery as the spirit of bondage. Now, people who are ensnared in the spirit of bondage are those who take their faith very seriously. They care about holiness. They sincerely desire to walk in holiness, but their faith is coming from a wrong kind of fear of God. They see God as this divine auditor looking down from heaven, just waiting until he gets to pounce on our defects. They fear all the tasks they believe God has put before them. They wonder, how can I even live out this calling? And the work of growing in the Lord becomes a bondage Rooting out sin only reveals more sin they need to kill. And they go deeper down the hole of discouragement, dread, and weariness. These are people who might be great at grieving their sin, but never reflecting on God's lavish grace and love. Galatians 5.1 speaks to the same idea. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So when we forget this truth, that we have a spirit of adoption, and this makes us sons and daughters of God with an inheritance waiting for us, we will turn the new life of the gospel into just another type of law. A spirit of slavery, which makes us fall back into fear. Paul is saying, don't you know this spirit in you bears witness that you are his children? And I will never forget this story I heard by a pastor. I can't even remember his name. But he told a story of bringing his children home from an orphanage in Eastern Europe. And he would find food stuffed in their beds and into the crevices of their high chair. 
because they'd done this in their orphanage to ensure they had something to eat. And he would look into their faces over and over again, explaining to them, you don't ever have to worry about not being fed. You belong to me now, and I will always feed you. But this took a while for them to believe this. And he began to describe the joy it brought him when his children took him at his word and believed that they belonged to him and would be taken care of. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. It's like this dad pressing truth into his child's heart again and again. We are not orphans anymore. We belong to God. We put sin to death. We take it seriously because it violates intimacy with him. We don't do this to get love. We do this because we are loved. And what would change in your life if you really took God's word on this. Now for the sake of time, I wanna skip down to Romans 8:28 because this is probably a verse that it's been more hurtful at times or confusing for so many people. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Anyone, everybody said something like this to you when you're hurting? All of us have a desire to understand why bad things happen. And many times when we suffer, we kind of expect this point to come where we will see what God was really up to and it will be this kind of big silver linings moment where God kind of pulls back the curtain and says, hey, you thought you were going through something really horrific, but this is what I was up to all along and it makes sense now, right? Kind of like the movie that slowly builds and it isn't until the end that you go, oh wow, that's why everything happened the way it did. And this is true in many cases. I'm not denying this at all. Suffering and painful seasons in our life can absolutely be preparing us for something that God has waiting for us. And it's such a faith builder when we go, my gosh, God was working in so many ways and I didn't even know. But that's not really what this verse is speaking of. This verse is speaking of a coming day one that all of creation is eagerly longing and groaning for. It's speaking of a future day when we are physically in the presence of Jesus and the earth and heavens are made new. Notice the future tense. In verse 18, it's the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Verse 24 says it's a hope that saved us, but we can't see it yet. And in verse 25, we are waiting for it with patience. So the good that God is going to do in all things will only be fully revealed in eternity. And when we hear the word good, we usually think of earthly comforts, like I lost my job, but God gave me a better one, or I got dumped by my boyfriend, but then I found the man that I married. But when we read verse 29, it also helps us understand what this good is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So foreknew means to set 
our love on. So when God set his love on us, he was saying, the good I'm going to do is this. I'm not going to stop working, even in the midst of suffering and futility, until I'm done conforming you to look like my son. It is so important to reflect on our future glory. And in the meantime, trust that God has not abandoned us even when our felt experience at times might feel like he has. And so when we look at the breadth of this chapter, the first verse opens with no condemnation. We are forgiven of everything we've ever done and will do. And in the middle, we learn that there is no defeat in our suffering and in putting sin to death. And then the very last sentence in chapter 8 is, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So no condemnation, no defeat, no separation. All of this is done by the work of the Spirit. We aren't condemned because in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. We aren't defeated in suffering because even suffering can't stop the good work God is doing in us. When we don't know how to pray to God in the midst of suffering, in verse 26 through 27, it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And in those moments, the Spirit actually steps in and prays for us according to the will of God. And best of all, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because the Spirit has made his home in us. There is no greater security. So a couple of years ago, my family and I drove to Colorado, and we stopped a night in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, a night in Santa Fe, and then the next day we drove on to Breckenridge. And when I was looking at our map, I saw what, that we would be driving really close to the Great Sand Dunes National Park. At least it looked close on the map till we began to drive it. <laughs> And once we turned off the road, we drove for what seemed like an eternity. I actually thought we were entering into our future glory. <laughs> so you know when something is your idea and you've had to sell people on this idea and you're really hoping it's not a bust because if it is, guess who's on the chopping block? This is a story of my life because I'm usually the salesperson in my family and I'm always trying to sell them. There's a lot of pessimists in my family, except for me. <laughs> so I'm always trying to sell them on how it will be great and we should totally do it. And so when the great sand dunes first came into sight, nestled against the 14,000 foot mountains surrounding it, I started to get a little bit worried as it looked really small and underwhelming. And my husband was the one who had been driving in the middle of nowhere for the past hour, and his first statement was, that's it? <laughs> and I felt a little bead of sweat break out on my neck when he said that. 
But as we kept driving, the dunes became more and more noticeably large. We bought our tickets at the headquarters, and I could not get over the site. But when we drove our car around the corner and began to descend to the base of the dunes, no one in my family was complaining anymore. We were all awestruck at the immensity of what we were seeing. And we got out and stood there, our feet in the sand, just like looking up. And as our eyes adjusted to the brightness, we began to see people on the very highest dunes off in the distance. And I can't imagine how hard it must have been to get to that place. But I had to stay in this area because my dog ran off the sand due to the heat. Because the surface temperature there in the heat of the day can get up to 150 degrees. Did not know that. So Dave and the kids ventured off to go sandboarding down one of the dunes. And so later on, as I reflected on this experience, God used this to teach me how this is very similar to our spiritual journey. Because we could have easily turned around the moment we saw the dunes at a distance. I mean, it's not worth our time to go any further if that's all they are. I mean, we can say that we saw them, but if people asked us what they were like, we would have just shrugged and said, they were all right, I guess. And likewise, if we settle for a distant, lukewarm relationship with God, he will just seem like the first sight of those dunes. Unimpressive, insignificant to us, just a distant reality we say we believe. Yeah, I'm a Christian, yawn. But as we went further into the journey and as we deepen in our faith, we begin to move away from trusting ourselves and we begin instead to trust his word and the leading of the spirit and God becomes greater and more beautiful and we can't pull our eyes away from his majesty, how worthy of our worship he is. I had to stay back in the river shallows like many of us can be content to stay in our faith. But my husband and kids got to taste and see. They felt the sand stinging their legs, the wind roaring in their ears. They drank deep of those dunes. And even then, there's a longing to deepen even more in knowing him and his grace, just like those people on the tops of the dunes. We are spurred on in our faith by those further along, not insecure, of how much further ahead they are, but encourage that we too can follow him like that. But I, we can't romanticize this deepening in faith. When my family came back from the dunes, they reported how hot the sand was, how exhausted climbing the dunes were, their skin hurt from the sand and the wind. And while I believe this journey is the one God calls us to, it is not safe and it is very hard. And the growth we experience is not necessarily growth closer to God, although this definitely happens as a result, but instead we are learning to grow into sons of God. And so I'd like to end today with a story about sonship that Thomas Goodwin would share. A man and his little child are walking down the road and they're walking hand in hand. And the child knows that he is the child of his father. He knows that his father loves him. And he rejoices in that and he is happy in that. 
There is no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, holds him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, and showers his love upon him, and then puts him down again, and they go walking on their way. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child. Was the little boy more a son in his father's arms than he was down on the street? No. But it made all the difference in the world of the boy to actually experience his sonship in his father's arms. So thank you very much for today. We're going to end today with worship. I want you guys to stay seated um, for this song. We're going to listen to the first verse, and then we'll join in uh, when the women start singing. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoice. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall. Right.
in me. 